You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 15, verses 22 to 35. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letters, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. Now, O God, to the great one in three, when we think of your oneness, we also remember your threeness, your trinity, and when we remember the, the persons of the trinity, we are then driven back to your oneness, O oh God. So we pray now that we would see you, O oh triune God, in glory, that you have um, purchased us by the blood of Christ, that you have called us by your spirit to be sons and daughters of you, O God the Father. So help us now as we sit under your word and as we hear it preached that we might follow you more closely and love you more dearly. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan, one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I'd love to. After, seriously, one of you guys came up to me last week after the service and said, You always say this, I've been hearing you say for like the last six or eight weeks to come and meet you after the service, and you finally did. So I'd love for you to do that. I'd love to get to know you after the service as well. Well, we humans are creatures that just innately make distinctions. It's like one of the things that we do. We put sports teams in categories that we like or don't like. We identify shows or movies on Netflix with a thumbs up or a thumbs down. We give star ratings for restaurants and for Airbnbs and for Uber drivers. We instinctually categorize people or ideas as helpful or as harmful. Sometimes we even attach actual labels to people or ideas so that we can better understand whether we think of them as helpful or as harmful, as allies or as threats, as insiders or outsiders. We are constantly drawing boundary lines. We all know that human history and certainly American History carries a deep and dark legacy of racial or ethnic distinctions, boundaries in which people made across ethnic or racial lines, and I hope that all of us would agree that this kind of distinction that caused such suffering and loss and social disparity and the disparaging of human dignity to be both deplorable and lamentable. But distinction isn't always bad. For instance, it is imperative that I know which children in Albuquerque I am legally responsible for. 
While I love all of the children in Albuquerque, I certainly, uh, with names and faces attached to the many of the children in this room, uh, I think, I hope that all of us uh, would agree that it would be irresponsible for me to not distinguish, to not make some distinction for my four sons from the rest of the, the, the children in this room or in the city. I am responsible for their food, for their education, for their discipleship, for their dentist appointments. If I were to take all of those things on of all the children in the city, I would be neglecting my own children. Similarly, uh, you members of Christ Church are responsible for each other and for me. We are accountable to each other in a deeper and a more heightened way than with other people in Albuquerque, even with other Christians in Albuquerque, that we might have deep and long-lasting friendships with. It, it is not the same, though. You and I are in covenant relationship with one another for the mutually committed care of our souls. And so, distinction isn't always bad. It happens all the time. Sometimes it's deplorable, but sometimes it's necessary. The context is everything. Well, Acts 15 is a really, really big chapter in the book of Acts and in the whole Bible. I said that too in Acts 10 a couple months ago, uh, in Peter's rooftop vision that was like a major page turn in the history of redemption. But chapter 15 kind of cements that page turn that we thought about uh, in in chapter 10. Kind of like chapter 10 was like the United States Constitution or something, but then each state, each colony had to then ratify and officially adopt as their own. Chapter 10 instituted a monumental change in the story of uh, God's interaction with his people in the Old Testament dietary laws and the social implications that went along with that. After all, we saw Peter enter into a Roman's house, something that Jews would never do in prior times. Chapter 15, though, officially ratifies all of that for the rest of these Jewish people that were following Jesus and for the rest of God's people. The question for Acts 15 then that presents to us right off the bat in first, is presented right off the bat in verse one. Here's what's going on. If you have your Bible, open to Acts 15 and just look at verse one. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what follows is a gathering of the apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church getting together for what is sometimes called the Jerusalem council to decide once and for all what to do with Gentiles who, that is non-Jews, who were becoming Christians. The question isn't necessarily, can Gentiles be saved? But the question is more, do Gentiles need to become Jewish to be saved? Where should distinctions be made? Are some distinctions good and some or other distinctions bad? Acts 15 not only tells of the decisions of this council, but it also has much, much to challenge and encourage us with here in America in 2021. So we're going to break down the first 35 verses of the chapter that we're going to get through tonight into three narrative sections. That is the dilemma, the decision, and the declaration. And that alliteration just wrapped up Clint like a warm blanket. Uh, But the dilemma, the decision, and the declaration. So first of all, in the first 18 verses, the dilemma, uh, we, we read these, some men came down from Judea. That is Uh, It's kind of weird. They're coming up. They're coming north to Antioch, uh, coming north from Antioch, from Judea, which is in the south. uh, But you always go up to Jerusalem, and that's because Jerusalem was on a mountain. It's Mount Zion. So anytime you are leaving Jerusalem, you are going down. When you're going up to Jerusalem from any direction, you're going up. So these men from Judea came down from Jerusalem up to the north in Antioch. We clear? And they are going to Antioch, which is exactly where we saw Paul and Barnabas last in chapter 14. These men that are, that have come to Antioch are teaching that all of these new Gentile followers of the way of Jesus, and remember back in chapter 11, that is here in Antioch where people are first called Christians. The folks in Jerusalem, we remember back in chapter 11, the folks in Jerusalem are hearing about all these uh, Gentile people saying that they are coming to faith and following in Israel's Messiah. And all of these people down in Jerusalem are like, this can't be. 
And this big cosmopolitan, like the Los Angeles of the Mediterranean world, surely people up there aren't becoming Christians. They aren't becoming followers of Jesus. So they send Barnabas up to check it out. Now, Barnabas, with long relationships with these people, they are here, Paul and Barnabas, and these men from Judea, they come to Antioch, perhaps and likely following up on the men and women that Paul and Barnabas have been discipling there. And they tell, at least the men there, that they must be circumcised. And that is weird to our modern ears. But this is something that would be entirely expected for first century Jews. We're not going to spend too much time here, uh, but let me more or less repeat something that I said almost two years ago when we were thinking through a very strange uh, story in the book of Exodus and Exodus 4 about circumcision. Beginning with Abraham in Genesis 17, the sign of God's covenant with Israel would be that all males were to be circumcised on their eighth day of life. And this begins with actually not a baby, but with an elderly man. Abraham, before he's even had a son. We see in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 17, that Abraham's sexuality is claimed by God. This is a very powerful thing. His virility is claimed for God's service in order that the promise of a son would be fulfilled through him, this old, old man. Compared to the world and the stories around Genesis 17, Abraham will not find fulfillment in some erotic quest, but in the raising of a family. And this bloody act was to be an act of faith of a person, this first person, Abraham, and then collectively of a nation consecrated to God and then set apart from the nations, a symbolic cutting off of skin that later prophets would explain were to actually symbolize the internal circumcision of the heart that is not performed by men, but is performed by God himself. That God would one day fully and finally set apart our whole lives, our desires, our hopes and expectations for both man and woman, not merely physically, but then spiritually. So circumcision was indeed for a long period of Israel's time, for their history, a distinguishing boundary marker, a boundary marker of insiders and outsiders. In the Old Testament, if you were a man and you did not, and you didn't become, well, you didn't become a part of God's people until you were circumcised. Remember this, in Exodus 12, as Israel is coming out of slavery, the foreigners that were traveling with Israel, the the sojourners, the co-travelers that were coming out of Egypt with Israel must be circumcised before they can take the Passover meal with Israel. In Exodus 12, we read, if a stranger shall, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, that is, he wants to keep the Passover, let all his males be circumcised first. Then he may come near and keep it. Then he shall be as a native of the land. That is, he will be like you. He will be a Jew. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it, shall eat of the Passover meal in Exodus 12. So this is a serious thing. Let's let's be careful to not immediately jump to conclusions that these men who have come to Antioch are like evil or they are diabolically trying to corrupt the gospel or something. It's very likely that they are merely trying to take God's word very, very seriously trying to apply uh, Exodus 12 to the life of God's people here. Like if they, they're likely thinking that if Gentiles have indeed come to worship and follow Israel's Messiah, then praise the Lord for that. Like Gentiles before, who were circumcised and then became as natives of the land, perhaps these Jews up in, or these non-Jews in in Antioch, would become people of the land, people belonging to God. And then all that that entailed with Israel's laws and its customs. But Paul and Barnabas completely disagree. We're going to see why in a minute. But they, Luke tells us here, they debate with these men in Antioch. And apparently no consensus, no decision is arrived at. The church at Antioch sends them, Paul and Barnabas in verse 2, to go up to Jerusalem, that is to go up the mountain down in the south, to ask the apostles and the Jerusalem elders for help in figuring out what to do. 
So they get to Jerusalem. They explain what has happened all over like the northeastern elbow of the Mediterranean Sea. The events that's happened that Paul, when Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, pretty much all throughout Turkey and Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. And they also share what the trouble is in Antioch. And then in verse 5, after they've shared all this, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees here in Jerusalem, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to, and, and, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, it's not as if none of these people here in Jerusalem had ever thought about this question. But I can only imagine that when uh, these members of the Pharisees stood up and said, actually, you know what? Now that Paul has shared about this debate up in Antioch, you know what? We're, we're with the, the ones who went up to Antioch and told them, it is necessary. Circumcision and the law is necessary. And I can only imagine that the reaction of many was a lot of these, like, not just frustration, but like, I actually, I don't know. What, what should we tell God's people to do? What is right? We are overjoyed for these Gentiles that are coming to faith in Christ, but what does God want for them now? What does he expect and demand from them now? Again, we shouldn't immediately villainize these Pharisees. One commentator puts it like this. If you had asked them, do you believe that Jesus died for your sin? They would have said, of course we do. That's why he came. But then they would have asked us, don't you believe that God has given us the law that is essential for everyone? We believe God gave a special revelation through Moses and that what God says in the law is true and is eternally binding. God has told us that we must be circumcised. If you disobey the commandment of God at that point, how can you be sure that you are saved? In other words, if we cave on this point, circumcision, then what's next? If we just start picking and choosing the bits of the law that we say that Christians can and should obey, then this thing just becomes like a free-for-all. Obedience and righteousness mean nothing now to those who are actually saying that they are wanting to follow God and that they have come to faith in Christ as their king. So this is indeed a dilemma. The page of history has turned, but what should life now be like on the other side of that page? So verse 7, after there had been much debate, I can imagine this thing probably just went on for hours and hours, maybe days. Luke isn't clear here. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's saying that the Old Testament scriptures are full of promises and examples of this, of Gentiles, of the nations coming to believe in the promises of God. The very foundational promises that were first made to Abraham We're about the blessing of the nations, of the Gentiles. So he goes on and says in verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, that is the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Here's what Peter's saying. Maybe remembering what he had seen in person with his own eyeballs in Cornelius' house in Acts 10, that a household full of Romans and other Gentiles had had the Spirit fall on them and indwell those uncircumcised Gentiles in the exact same way that it had on all of these circumcised Jews in Acts 2 at Pentecost. God the Father gave them, the Gentiles, God the Spirit, through their faith in God the Son, just the same as he had with we Jews down in Jerusalem. Remember back when we were all there and the Spirit fell in Acts 2 or at Pentecost? I saw the same thing happen to people who were not circumcised. So that is evidence to us that it was not by their being united to Jewishness, it was not by their being united to the law and to circumcision, but their being united to Christ 
that God has poured out his spirit. It was by their being united to his life, his death, his resurrection, in his perfect keeping of of the law and not their own that God has saved them. Because notice how Peter says it in verse 11. He actually doesn't say that the Gentiles can be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just like we Jews are saved. No, he actually flips that around. He says in verse 11 that we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord just as they will. Not that they will be saved just as we will, but that we will be saved just as they. Not by keeping the law, but by grace through faith. Through the love of God that brings the forgiveness of sins. That brings those who are far away, now very near, that makes orphans and outsiders the very family of God, just like he has with us. We Jews are in the exact same boat as them, Peter is saying. Gentiles do not become Jews in order to be Christians, but that the hope and the fulfillment of Judaism itself The hope and the fulfillment of the Jewish nation itself is that both Jews and Gentiles alike would find their rest and their unity as Christians. That Christ has obliterated the dividing wall of hostility and has made now one new man in the place of the two. There is in fact now no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Because here's the thing with the law, going back to our, our illustration from a couple of weeks ago, that the law is like lighter fluid without any fire. There is nothing inherently bad about the law. It is good, but it is always pointing forward, revealing to God's people the character of God, but also pointing forward to that it's being fulfilled by its being uh, absorbed and kept into the life of Jesus. So Peter's language here of putting on an unnecessary yoke you know, like a a yoke that you put on an ox or a donkey. It is unnecessary. It's not pulling anything. It is an unnecessary yoke on these Gentiles' shoulders because it is like they already have this warm and burning campfire, and then after the fact, you go and hand them this bottle of lighter fluid. We're trying to make them spray lighter fluid on top of this fire. This is dangerous. And it completely misses the point of the gift of the lighter fluid. The time for it is past because the fire has already been made. And so, verse 12, after he says all these things, the assembly fell silent. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. The fire is being made without the lighter fluid. God has provided the miraculous spark. And then verse 13, after they had finished speaking, James, and by the way, this is James, the brother of Jesus, the writer of the book of James, not the same James, the brother of John, that Herod had killed by the sword in Acts 12, but this James gets up and says, brothers, listen to me. Verse 14, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And he calls Peter here by his Jewish name. And not just Simon, which is like an Aramaic evolution of the very much older Jewish name Simeon, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Simeon, he's reminding the people, Simeon, the very Jewish apostle of Jesus, has reminded us how God would take for himself a people from the nations to carry his name, just like Israel was to bear or carry the name of Yahweh seriously and rightly, not in vain, like the ninth commandment tells them not to, not to bear or carry the name of God unseriously or unrightly, but now Gentiles too are to carry the name of God on their heads, on their shoulders. They're to carry it rightly and seriously, people of all nations. But all of this that James is talking about is the pregame. It is the preface or the premises on which Peter and James are about to lead the council toward a decision. There has been a serious dilemma set before the church, but they model well to us how to do theology in the life of community. That while individual Christians 
certainly do have the illuminating power of the Spirit, and we can know God and serve God individually as his priests. Sometimes, an isolated Christian with his Bible can actually come to very destructive conclusions. God has not saved individuals, but he has saved for himself a people. And wisdom comes from a multitude of counselors. Counsel, both from the community of the worldwide and time-wide Christian church, but perhaps even more importantly, in the community of covenanted Christians in local churches, learning and growing together. And this is what they're modeling well for us here. But the dilemma is very real. What's the decision, though? What is the decision about the people of God and about distinctions? Let's get here now, to the, the, secondly, to the decision. James goes on. And even though verse 19 doesn't quite give us the decision of the whole council, they will later, in, uh, we'll get to in the declaration, our third point, they will, in that third point, basically and essentially adopt James's decision here, word for word. But here's what James says in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment, he's not saying this is the judgment of, or should be the judgment of the whole council, but my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. He says that we should not trouble those Gentiles who have turned to God, meaning what, what you are proposing that we do uh, we should not give them a bottle of lighter fluid because they already have a warming and roaring campfire. They do not need to become Jews to become Christians. They are Christians. They have the law. They, like we, are God's holy temple without keeping the law. And so while we'll, we'll, we spent a few minutes in Paul's letter to the Galatians last week, Galatians 5 is actually particularly helpful to perhaps fill out the conclusions of the council. Paul says in Galatians 5, he says that for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, the same language that Peter used earlier. Look, I, Paul says in Galatians 5, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That is, if you accept that you must keep these Old Testament, Old Covenant law boundary markers, then Christ is of no advantage. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. The saving gospel of Jesus is a gospel of freedom and of joy. The saving gospel of Jesus is of justification, that of God making humans right before him through the forgiveness of sins, through the once and for all work of Christ on our behalf. It's not about earning. The good news of Jesus is about what has been earned. And if we say that we must trust in Christ on our behalf as a good and necessary starting point, but then we must fulfill X or Y or Z or X, Y and Z to accomplish and experience our salvation, then as Paul says, Christ died for nothing. Jesus brings dead people to life all the way by replacing dead hearts with ones that are alive. He is not just doing like chest compressions and then hoping and praying that his patients, those that are receiving his chest compressions, have enough strength or life within them to come to spiritual consciousness on their own. It is not faith in Jesus plus righteousness that equals salvation, but faith in Jesus' righteousness which equals salvation. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But the potential concern behind the original question at hand is still relevant. James is saying we should not put a yoke of slavery on to these people. We should not trouble them with the law. But if we get rid of circumcision, have we indeed gotten rid of the whole law? That is, do Christians 
then and now have the freedom to do or to say or to live in whatever way we want. Is the freedom that Christ has brought to us now a freedom of picking and choosing from day to day or year to year of whatever way we think God wants for us? Well, including a couple years ago, 10 sermons that we did through the Ten Commandments. We spent 12 or 13 weeks on either side of the Ten Commandments uh, thinking about the role and the nature of the law. So maybe if uh, something I'm about to say opens more questions for you, and uh, we could certainly meet for coffee and talk about that, but perhaps you could find those sermons and think about the relationship of the law on this side of the cross. But the consensus theology of the New Testament is this. That it is Christ alone who accomplishes our salvation, who brings justification, who makes us right before God the Father. But justification is not the end goal. Justification is just the means to an end. The forgiveness of your sins is now the gateway to the freedom of holiness. A holiness that you could never achieve or accomplish on your own, but now you have the freedom to walk and to grow in. Not crushing your shoulders in a quest for approval or acceptance, but now walking in the freedom of approval and acceptance. So, James says, now that we have been made right before God, now that we no longer have to earn salvation to either bring entrance or to make us uh, covenantally stay right before God. Jesus has brought that finally and fully. Now, though, James gives four requirements for Gentile Christians to now consider and to obey. He doesn't say anything about circumcision here, but he does give four things that, to be honest, are really weird. You'd think he'd include something, perhaps about circumcision, but then certainly, like the four things that these new Christians, these new Gentile Christians ought to think about or obey, you'd think he'd say something about like lying or cheating or obeying your parents or something. But here are the four things that he says. He says that these new Gentile Christians should not eat foods that were sacrificed to idols. They should avoid sexual immorality. They should not eat animals that were strangled. Weird. And don't drink blood. All right. Well, the reasons that James comes up with these four things are twofold. The first says that while these Gentiles are now free in Christ, that is, their works do not save them, they have the warming campfire Holy Spirit of the Lord without keeping the law, That does not mean that they should now use their newly found freedom to now flaunt their freedom in the face of Jewish Christians or of Jewish people who are not Christians for whom these things would still be very culturally offensive, these four things. These four things seem arbitrary and disconnected, but these are all things that were actually connected to Greco-Roman temples. The first, meat sacrifice to idols. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians or in Romans, but meats that were sacrificed to Zeus or to Athena or to Apollo or something should not eat these meats. This would be, these meats would be offensive to Jews or still ingrained in the consciences of Jewish Christians. They should also abstain from meats, meat from animals that were strangled. We don't do this to kill animals these days, and they didn't then either. The, way that, the reason that you would strangle an animal to kill it was to make sure that no blood left its body. This was a way to sacrifice animals in Greco-Roman temples. So this was related to the first. They were also to avoid blood. I think implied here is drinking blood, an explicitly temple ritual. And then, within the context of these other three temple practices, the kind of sexual immorality that I think James is talking about here is the kind of sexual immorality that happened in nearly all kinds of temples to all kinds of gods or goddesses. And so, 
while the rest of the New Testament, and in fact the entire story of the whole Bible, makes clear that sexuality is a good gift from God instituted at creation, intended for one man and one woman in covenanted marriage, here in Acts 15, along with these other three prohibitions, James is reiterating that freedom in Christ does not mean freedom to be a jerk. Freedom to just flaunt freedom in the faces of those perhaps with weaker consciences. See 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 or Romans 14 for Paul's further teaching on this. But there is seemingly a second reason why James would make these four prohibitions. Not just to counsel patience and love for, uh, on behalf of these new Gentile Christians for their Jewish brothers and sisters, but a second reason is that these four things actually are Greco-Roman practices of idolatry. Meaning that while Christ has brought, bought our freedom, making no distinction within and amongst God's people, amongst Jew and Gentile, God's people, however, are called to be distinct from the world around them. No distinctions from within, but yes, distinctions from without. The church must not adopt the world's worldliness. They ought to live lives that have been wholly and totally, completely bought and redeemed by Christ. There are certain things that Christians just must not do. Not because avoiding those things brings salvation. Avoiding those things makes one right before God. But that walking with Christ now means not any longer doing those things. Those things are for dead people, apart from the life of Christ, apart from the warming fire of the Spirit. But you have the Spirit now. You are alive in Christ. So, on the one hand, these four prohibitions are pretty culturally contextual. The reason these are so strange to us is because they make no sense to our modern ears. We have no, our antenna are not up for thinking about blood in the same way of like Greco-Roman temples, animals strangling. We, that's so weird to us that it's removed from a temple context. And so if you were like in Scotland and you were served a blood sausage or even worse, a blood pudding, uh, you would be crazy for eating that. It is gross. But I think that you would not be in sin. You would not be disobeying the Jerusalem council of Acts 15. Blood removed from the culture of blood sacrifice is not inherently sinful. James and the council are calling God's people to be distinct from the world, from the idolatry and dead worship of the world. But that does not mean that now anything goes, because blood sacrifice and strangulation were culturally contextual, and obviously these ancient people were not nearly as enlightened as we are about sociology or anthropology, now we get to like pick and choose that which we think is just culturally contextual. And so here is a question to perhaps mull over this week, both in our own thoughts and then importantly, doing theology in community. That if the Jerusalem Council happened today, what would the things be that we would be most tempted to add on to salvation? as these first Christians were doing with circumcision. Like circumcision, what are the things that we are consciously or subconsciously believing that are requirements for salvation, that are actually matters of conscience? Of course, there are the old go-tos of alcohol or rigorously keeping the Sabbath, and certainly we would say that the Jerusalem Council speaks very clearly to our Catholic friends and neighbors, that God does not start a work of grace in you that then must be completed in the lifetime of mass 
and confession. But there are hard lines being drawn in all sorts of ways these days that are dividing churches and that are dividing entire denominations. One pastor wrote this week, we are at a place where worldview loyalty supplants actual orthodoxy as a litmus test for Christianity. Whether you agree with me politically or culturally means more than actual Christian orthodoxy. And he says, I don't like this path that we are on and I'm afraid that we are not at the end. And I think he's right. I'm so glad for the unity that we largely share with one another here. Many pastor friends that are around the country who are pastoring churches that are barely hanging on and that are seemingly just ready to tear at the seams over political, cultural, and social issues. And I'm so thankful for our church, for the unity that Christ brings, that transcends our wider disagreement. But that is not a given, and it will not remain a given just because we are enjoying it today. We must keep striving for unity and for peace. We must not make dividing lines of the gospel over things that are not the gospel. The gospel certainly has implications that are enormously important within our own life and with our witness to the world around us. But we must be careful. We must be diligent to not add on things to the finished work of Christ. But secondly, what would the council encourage us to remain faithfully distinct from the world in? That is, if James were writing a blog post to the universal church today, what four things might he come up with? I realize that I may be doing us an enormous disservice in what I'm about to say over the next few minutes, just kind of crop dusting over a few of of the most like contentious social issues of the day, but Christchurch, it is imperative that we hold the line on a few things. Imperative that we make distinctions, that we distinguish ourselves from the world around us, that we hold the line on sexuality. Many folks accuse Christians of being obsessed with sex, of unfairly singling out what we understand as sexual sin by then downplaying or ignoring other sin. And that may be true for some, but I don't think it's true for us. I think most of us have been on the receiving end of rebuke or correction from each other way more often for other areas of sin that are not sexual sin. Areas like selfishness or pride or anger or greed. I don't think that we are unfairly singling that out within the life of our own, our, our own church. The reason that it seems like sexuality is singled out is because it is one of the only areas of clear teaching that the Bible calls sin that then the world and now many Christians are actually calling good. Very few out there are teaching and saying that murder or theft is good. And so what was implicit throughout 2,000 years of church history that everyone thought of as a given now has to be made explicitly clear. And it feels like then it's like singling, the church is singling out sexuality. Now we want our church to be the most warm and welcoming church in the entire city. We want open dinner tables, open living rooms, but we also want in clear love to not be willing to affirm one category, apart from any other category in the Bible, one category of sin as actual righteousness. That applies across the spectrum of sexual sin that includes all of us in this room. But that actually God wants all of us. That no human gets to like close off one room in the house of his heart, lock the door and say, Jesus can't come in here. And we are not converted to a sexual norm. We are converted to life in Christ, but we must be careful not to uh, hand a bottle of lighter fluid to the world around us. Say that if you just believe and act in this way that you are now right before God, 
But one reason why sexuality, especially as it's understood today, is so important is that uh, it's, a, it's a question of anthropology. That is, what is a human? What is a human for? What is desire for? Who are we? And so that's why issues and debates, not just over sexuality, but over abortion and euthanasia, are equally important. We Christians must not seek to love and empower only those who are able to reciprocally benefit us. But we are to care for all image bearers of God from the cradle unto the grave, in whatever scenario they may find themselves in. And so Stanley Hauervoss once said that if a hundred years from now, Christians are known as those who didn't kill their babies or their elderly, we will have done well. Now that is a baseline of distinction from the world that ought to be non-negotiable. But that's not to say that those who hold orthodox views on sexuality and on life are then now free in Christ to be entirely ungracious, entirely unloving, impatient, unkind, prone toward and even celebrating slander and gossip being overly divisive. And as long as you hold the line on a couple of big cultural issues now that we can just live our lives in however we'd like, if the Jerusalem Council actually is about the church being distinct from the world, then perhaps in an increasingly angry world, maybe Acts 15 actually speaks a strong word to us just about being patient, about being willing to forgive, about being kind. Being kind is just about as radically distinct from the world as not drinking blood these days. Boundary markers here of character and compassion from the heart rather than merely physical boundary markers of the body. A distinct people of God called out from the world and now as a light to the world. There are likely many other things that we Christians ought to say no to. We could probably keep going for another hour. Pornography, my goodness. We are Christians. We should not use and exploit other human beings, and it should not be every man's battle. And yet, while we could stay here for another hour, Christ has freed us from the law. We will fail. And praise God that he will redeem us as failures. But we cannot call that which is evil good. That it is no big deal. Certainly within our own lives and amongst our own community. Now some of, those, some of the things that I brought up we have spent entire sermons on. Entire like Saturday, Saturday seminars. Considering if I just said something that seems to be hurtful or harmful, would you please uh, talk to someone else next to you over coffee or over lunch this week? Would you please talk to me over coffee or lunch sometime soon so that we can clarify the things that I may have said and did not say? But these are difficult and complex theological issues, and we must be willing to have these conversations within the context of community. Doing theology and doing anthropology in community, rather than being shaped and formed merely by our favorite Instagrammers or our favorite podcasters or bloggers who may give one persuasive side to their story. Okay, I have like a minute left for our third point, but that's okay. The Jerusalem Council considered the debate, they arrived at the decision, and then they finally give the declaration. Now this is the section that Michael read for us earlier, and it is essentially just a recap, a letter that they send to Antioch to relay what they have decided. The apostles, the elders, and in fact the whole church, they choose men to send this letter along with Paul and Barnabas, these guys named Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas. They deliver the decision to the Antioch church that is increasingly being made up of Gentile Christians, and they tell them that these original guys that had come up to Antioch and had been teaching that they must be circumcised, they were not sent by them. So just Let's clarify this. They were not sent by the authority of the apostles of Jesus. 
So now let this letter now declare for you with the apostolic authority how you ought to live. And with an understanding that their decision was guided by the Holy Spirit, they say in verse 28, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden for than these requirements. And then they list out or repeat James's four recommendations. And then we read in verse 31 after the letter is read, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both men and women are rejoicing because they are reassured by their absolute freedom, by their completed salvation that was won for them by their risen Lord, that they no longer had to just keep trying to grab a bottle of lighter fluid here or there and spray here or there and hope to start a fire. No, their fire has been started. And Christ is here, and he is indwelling you by the Spirit. So now these Antioch Christians now are thinking, I do not need to worry today about whether I will measure up in God's eyes. Anxiety about my salvation has been swallowed up in a rugged cross and has been spit out of an empty tomb. Assurance is poured out by my faith in the promises of God, secured in Christ and now delivered once and for all by the Spirit. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When tears are stilled and strivings cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. These Antioch Christians must have been just singing in their hearts, maybe not with those words, but now that we, get to sing in our hearts 2,000 years later. Christ Church, let me pray that all of that might just be experientially true for us in our hearts and minds this week. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you have kept the law in ways in which we could never even dream. You have walked perfectly and obediently and totally righteously before our Father. And indeed, it is through your law-keeping that you bring us in on the coattails of your righteousness that we might call you, God, our Father. And so we are thankful for the freedom that you have purchased on our behalf. We are thankful that you have gone to the cross, the place of death as our substitute. And Holy Spirit, we are thankful for the fire that you are warming us with. We pray that you by the power of your word, by the life of us in community, by even your own work might even fan that flame of warmth and light even greater in increasing ways of distinct, holy ways, not of self-righteousness, not of performative bravado to the nations around us, but of compassion and of welcoming grace, of patience and forbearance and forgiveness and joy and of love, we pray. Cause us to be and to welcome and to love more and more like our King, whom we are united to by faith. And it is in his name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.